0: The rest of us can continue on our series on Foundations, Foundations of the Christian Faith. Have you ever heard of the book, The Institutes of the Christian Faith? It's uh, uh, John Calvin wrote it. Uh, he first edition was published in 1536. The final edition was published from 1559. And uh, throughout these years, he kept on reworking, changing order of chapters, trying to find the ideal way to teach the Christian faith, it's interesting that today um, those books are viewed as high theology only for those who are going to seminary and so on, and yet uh, the institutes, the word institutes means the basic, the principles, the elemental principles of the Christian faith. He wrote it as an apology or a defense for the Christian faith to uh, the king of France and that uh, was just to explain the basics of Christianity and how we, you know, we've gone uh, quite a bit away from that uh, these days. Uh, the uh, preface to the larger and shorter catechisms prepared by the Westminster Assembly, say, the preface says that the shorter catechism was written for children and those not intelligent enough to memorize the larger catechism. So adults were intended to memorize the larger catechism. And now even the shorter catechism is viewed as something that is uh, for the highly theologically uh, minded and so on. And uh, we have moved some of the things that have historically been considered foundations to the Christian uh, faith, stuff that should be on the root level, to the leaf level, Uh, and have forgotten to study these things. So that's one of the reasons why we're going through this series, and we're approaching um, the end of a few more weeks, and we should be done with this series, is to bring some of the stuff that now is considered high-leaf theology back to where it needs to be, to the root, to the foundation of what we believe. We, we, We have studied what the Bible says concerning man, concerning humanity, Concerning creation, concerning providence, concerning the Bible itself. And then we came into what the Bible talks about uh, concerning salvation. The doctrine of salvation uh, or soteriology. And we've been looking at it in a particular order. The order in which God has worked these things out logically. Uh, Some call it the order salutis. And uh, there are ten things that are involved in that. We've looked at the first four. We've looked at what the Bible teaches concerning factual calling, concerning regeneration, concerning repentance unto life, and faith in Jesus Christ. Today, Lord willing, we're going to look at what the Bible teaches concerning justification. And in God's providence, the portion where we are in 1 John is about adoption. So we're going to be considering that this morning in this morning's sermon as well. And then, Lord willing, in two weeks we are going to look at um, sanctification both in its definitive form and its progressive form. A bit of a review from last week. Last week we took a look at repentance unto life and faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, these are, this is a logical progression. I'm not saying that these things are happening necessarily chronologically, but as we think about them, it's, it's helpful to think about them happening in this logical order. Some of them are follow chronologically, and some are happening all at the same time. Effectual calling and regeneration are all happening at the same time. Repentance unto life and faith in Jesus Christ are happening at the same time. But there's a logical progression that we are seeing here. These two steps could be uh, described as a person's conversion, as the experience of coming to Jesus Christ from our uh, perspective perspective uh, we define repentance unto life as that initial radical and conscious change of opinion, feeling, and purpose with respect to God, ourselves, sin, and righteousness. You can see that repentance unto life, that first time we repent from being a sinner, is a, a whole person experience. Nothing is left out of, of that. Uh, we can see that involves our whole being. And because this is so important, we saw last week, it, it is a very grave of sin for a minister of the gospel, not to call people to repent from from their sins. It is a very grievous sin for a church not to have in their regular diet of preaching call to repentance, because it is of the essence of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And we saw also last week that faith in Jesus consists in three elements, that, that when we put our faith in Christ, there are three things that we're doing. We, are, we, we know the gospel. We must know the gospel. You cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ by accident. That is, out of nothing, without naming knowledge, coming to know Jesus. There is, you have to have know, know the gospel. You have to re- accept the gospel as true. That's this. Give assent the gospel. And then you have to make that yours. We can, we can accept something as true and still say, but you know what? I don't care for it. That's not faith. Faith receives that as being ours, as well as being true of me and our, my need, and I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So assent is cognition, pass into conviction, and trust is conviction passed into confidence. So these three parts are, part, are necessary parts of saving faith in Jesus Christ. And we saw the scriptures that taught that last week as well. And saving faith is the result of regeneration, because we have been, received a new heart, we're able to believe. There, and lastly, last week we saw the saving faith is diametrically opposed to law keeping. Uh, Paul, we went through a a few passages in the book of Romans to show that that there's no, um, if you if you're trying to obey in order to be to to be saved, then you missed the boat because saving faith has nothing to do with keeping the law. It's, it's, it's apart from keeping the law. Any questions about the things I've said so far as review from previous weeks? All right, so justification. That's a, that's a big issue, big, important issue that is perennially under attack in the church of Jesus Christ. seems like every generation faces an attack in this doctrine. Uh, the believer experiences justification, adoption, and sanctification in in this life after he's been effectually called and regenerated. When you've been given a new heart, when you've been born again, now you're able to repent from your sins. Now you're able to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of that, then you are justified. Our shorter catechism helps us. By, um, in question 32, he asks, what benefits do they that are effectively called partake of in this life? They that are effectively called to do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. So justification flows from having your heart changed by the Spirit of God. Is a result of the New Covenant. Remember, the New Covenant is a promise that God is going to give His people a new heart, replace a heart of stone with a heart of flesh that's able to believe in Him. Justification flows from that. And justification it happens in a moment. It's not a process. It's an act of God. It happens in the moment. And it happens in the moment that you place your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the same thing with uh, adoption as well. Okay, so let's define... uh, justification, then grab your hymnal and turn to page 855 using the little numbers on the bottom of the page, not the big numbers in the hymns, but in the little numbers on the bottom of the page. On page 855, you should find chapter 11 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Is that correct? All right. So look at paragraph 1 of chapter 11. Those whom God effectually calleth, He also freely justifieth. And then the confession is going to go through a bunch of negations. It's going to tell us what justification is not, followed by some affirmations, saying this is what it is. So He freely justifies not by infusing righteousness into them. So... Uh, Asian infusion or whatever. You know, they have these restaurants that, that have different names that you're supposed to be mixing into. To infuse is to inject something into right? So when God declares us to be righteous, that's what justification means, to be declared to be righteous. He is not somehow doing something in us or to us. Nothing is happening in us when God declares us to be righteous. It's, everything is outside of us. So he's not infusing. so It's not like he's getting a spiritual shot in the arm, and somehow we are now uh, justified. Continue, he says, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Again, nothing happening to us is by pardoning our sins. That happens outside of us. And by accounting, that is, receiving, regarding their persons as righteous. Again, outside of us, nothing happening in us. Continue, not for anything wrought in them, nothing done, so wrought means worked, or done in them. So this again, you get the point that they're stressing here, right? There's nothing happening in us when God declares us to be righteous. Or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself. So it's not like God says, you know what, Heather believed in Jesus. So I'm going to count that faith as something that she did. And we're going to consider that righteousness for her. No, he's not doing that. He's not imputing our own faith to us as something that should be considered righteous. Nor by imputing the faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing. Now, what does impute mean? With an M, not N. It means to count, to reckon, to consider. Is a is a term dear to my heart because it is an accounting term not only a theological term but also an accounting term is to count something to just reckon to recognize as such but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them they receiving and resting on him in his righteousness by faith which faith they have not of themselves it is of gift of god so that's that's what justification is it's god saying this person's, I'm declaring this person's righteous because they believe in Jesus Christ. And my son is righteous. So I'm going to look at them through my son. And in my son, I'm going to see them as righteous. Nothing happened in us. All outside of us. Any questions before we continue? All right, so... To justify means to treat as righteous or to declare as righteous, regardless of the state of the person. So the Bible uses that word justifying in several ways. You can justify God, for example, which is a good thing, right? In Psalm 51, the psalmist says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you might be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So Dave says, you have just reason to condemn me. You are justified in your condemnation of me. Again, in Luke seven twenty nine, when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So God, the, the tax collectors declared God to be righteous, which is a declaration that's true, because God is righteous. We can justify Christ. The Bible uses uh, the word that way in 1 Timothy 3.16. Um, that says that Christ was justified in the spirit. And the term justify can be used for bad things as well. Uh, we can justify wicked sinners, which is a bad thing. Right? We, we realize that, right? To declare that wicked sinners are righteous is a bad, bad thing. But we, f- we find that the word being used that way. He who justifies the wicked... And who condemns the just, both of them are like an abomination to the Lord. Or one can justify doers of the law, which is a good thing. If there's a dispute between men and they come to court that they may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, that's a good thing. But usually it, the term justify refers to God's justifying repentant sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you turn to Romans chapter 3 for a second? We needed a desk, little desks for this class. We need the hymnal open and the Bible open. <laughs> Look at Romans chapter 3 for a second. Starting verse 19. The apostle says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So no no matter how hard you try, no matter, you can try to keep the law of God perfectly. You can try to keep whatever standard you come up with you that is not going to be the basis by which you're declared to be righteous. Because through that attempt to obey, apart from the Spirit of God, all that comes to us is the knowledge that we can't. is the knowledge of sin. In God's good grace, the, the apostle continues in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's interesting here that Paul is not saying, hey, I'm telling you something new. It says there's already been witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is how it's always been. In verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. So what is it? It's the righteousness of Christ through faith, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For all have sinned, and that includes everyone, and it's interesting that there's a change in tense. All have sinned and fall short. That is, they continue to fall short of the glory of God. It's not that you no, know, we all have sinned sometime in the past, and now we've kind of made up for it. No, we have sinned in the past, and we continue to fall short of the mark of the glory of God. 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So as all of, justification is all of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that God is a just and The justifier. And that's why Paul then in verse 20 says, So, where's the boasting? How can we boast? Everything is of God. We're not bringing anything to the table. Where is the boast? Is the boast in the law? Is that the boast in your works? No. But by the law of faith, therefore, we conclude in verse 28 that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So, justification in the theological sense is. God's declaring the repentant sinner to be righteous through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we should note that to justify does not mean to make righteous in practice. It means to declare to be righteous. Any questions before we continue? All right, so just to back up a bit, let's talk about the ground of justification. Why is it? How can we be Justified? How can God the Father in His pure righteousness justify the ungodly? That's really at the, the question of the heart of Romans 4, 5. Look at what it says in Romans 4, 5. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So what's the ground? Faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. The ground justification is not righteousness found in us, as Paul already told us in Romans, he tells us that also in Psalm 130, not Paul, but God. If you, Lord, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So if the Lord was actually going to give us what we deserve, if the basis, the grounds of our justification was something in us, we'd be in trouble because all he finds is iniquity. The, as I said, the ground of justification is not righteousness infused into us, The ground of justification is not anything done or worked in us. Not even our faith is counted as as something worthy of our justification. The ground of justification is not God's benevolence or pity. It's not that God looked at you and said, Oh, I feel sorry for you, so I'm going to declare you righteous. No, that's not the grounds of our justification. God cannot do that. There are certain things that even God can't do. He can't lie. And he cannot go against his nature. So he cannot just simply treat the sinner as not being a sinner without some sort of accounting for the sin. Uh, The ground of justification is the perfect righteousness of Christ applied to us on the basis of his blood shed for us. That's the ground of our justification. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 9 of Romans. Paul says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. It's through the blood of Christ that we are justified. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Any questions of that? Yes, Adam. Adam. Can we, uh, we're going to get to Abraham and to David in chapter 4 in just a second. Is that okay? Hold on. If I don't answer that, bring it up again. All right? Any, any other questions I can deflect? <laughs> All right. So we talk about the grounds of justification. And let's talk about the instrument, the means, the, the, the channel, let's say, of justification. Faith is the only instrument to receive Justification. Uh, Look at uh, chapter 1 of Romans, in verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then if you look at chapter 3, verse 28 of Romans, Paul says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Faith is the only instrument to receive justification. It's the only thing that connects us to God is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul repeats that in Galatians chapter two, verse sixteen. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. It's interesting that in the last twenty years, there's been a lot of debate on the book of Galatians. People saying that Paul does not teach justification by faith alone in the book of Galatians. And yet we come up passage like this. And what is it if is what is Paul teaching then if he's not teaching justification by faith alone in the book of Galatians? It's interesting, it's important that we remember that faith has always been the instrument of justification when the very first person who was ever saved by the Lord Jesus Christ it just I believe was Adam and Eve themselves to the very last person faith is all is always going to be that instrument it didn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament It's always been the same if you as you have a, your hymnal open to page eight fifty five i don 't know if this is going to be only 855, but it's, it's paragraph 6 of chapter 11. So somewhere in there. <clears throat> uh, the confession says there in 11:6 in, in the justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. So the believers in the Old Testament weren't justified differently. They believed in the Messiah. And that's how they were justified. It's interesting, in, in, in Romans chapter 4, Paul talks about Abraham, uh, and then he talks about David, and he masterfully picked those two. Why do you think he picked Abraham and David? To, to be examples of the type of faith we're supposed to be, to have in order to be justified. Why, why did you pick those two? Andrew? Because their sins were very open to us. Sure. Yeah. Because no. they never saw God? Well, like Jesus. Well, Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it, in, in John 8. Really? You guys are so theologically smart that, that, that uh, you're thinking too deeply about the question. <laughs> Think chronologically. Risa. Yeah, still too too high thinking. From, <laughs> when did Abraham, in relation to Moses, when did Abraham live? live? And how about David? What did Moses do? Was the instrument of God to give the Mosaic Covenant, like right? the law and so on. And some people say, oh, uh, the Old Testament saints are saved by the law, by keeping the law and so on. And yet, Paul says, here's Abraham and David, both on each side of the, the, the giving of the law with Moses, and they're both saved the same way as you and I are today. You know, apart from obedience to the law, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then going back to Adam's question, but, but uh, here says that, in quoting Genesis fifteen six, that Abraham believed and that was counted to him for righteousness. Right, that's what your question, Adam. That, what's that? That, that's not the faith, but what Abraham believed. What Abraham believed was counted for him for, as 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 righteousness. And the faith Jesus tells us he believed in. In Jesus, in in John chapter eight, specifically, Jesus says that Abraham saw me and rejoiced in my day, and he was delivered through faith in me. So that is what was counted to him for righteousness. The, 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 what Jesus did that faith in because he believed in Jesus. So, Abraham was delivered, it was justified like we are. David, and good job, you guys are very, very intelligent and theologically uh, smart, so sometimes my questions don't work because I was expecting, uh, uh, you know, not so much smartness on your part. I shouldn't because you guys are all great. Uh, Abraham was uh, justified like we are. David was justified like we are. If, you're, if you had to go to another part of the New Testament, one chapter that would also show that the Old Testament saints have been justified or had the same faith as we have, what would that chapter be, Lois? 11, 11 yes. Here we have uh, the Holy Spirit says, believe like these people do. Well, believe like these people did. And then he, he goes on and lists a bunch of Old Testament saints saying they had the same faith as we have now. Now, did they know all the details about Jesus we know today? No. But they, need, they knew the things that are necessary for um, being justified in the sight of God. Now, this faith that is saving faith, this one that's the faith that saves, is always accompanied by other uh, saving graces, right? It's never left alone. We, uh, justification always is accompanied by sanctification. Truly believing Jesus Christ is always accompanied, is followed by righteousness and obedience and so on. But what follows doesn't cause what precedes. Though you're never justified, you're never justified unto unholiness. You're only justified unto holiness. The holiness that that follows does not cause the justification that preceded. Does it make sense to you guys what I'm saying here? All right. So, but, and even this faith that we have is by the grace of God. Thus, all of our salvation is the work of God, all of His grace. Paul says in Ephesians 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us, who believe according to the working of His mighty power. What is is Paul praying for? That God would give them these things. So even this faith in Christ is a gift of God in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that, right? That in that, not of yourselves, that there is the whole thing about believing in verse 8 there. Any questions before we continue? All right, the time of justification. When is it that uh, we become justified? Well, justification is applied at the time faith is exercised. The moment we believe, we are justified. You can see that in paragraph 4 of, uh, our, of chapter 11. We're not going to read that, but you can see that there. Just, justification continues. So it's not like we're justified and then that we're done being justified. It continues. We continue in a state of just being justified. We never lose that through our whole life. We see that in paragraph 5 of the confession. So justification is experienced at the time that we place our faith in Christ, our, our the time of our conversion. Remember... Remember Isaiah's invitation in chapter one, come and let us reason. And when when you come, what happens? According to Isaiah 118. Your sins will be as white as snow. Exactly. Your sins are going to be as white as white as snow. Though they be scarlet. as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And that state of justification continues throughout the life. We will never, from the moment we believe in Jesus Christ, God the Father always sees us as righteous, as perfect. No, no, or as not guilty of our sins from that moment on. Um, uh, John tells us that in 1 John, where uh, we continue to have access to God, we never stand apart from God. Jesus is always interceding for us before the Father throughout our lives. Any questions on this? And this idea that uh, once, once we come to faith in Jesus Christ and declare to be righteous in His sight, that is something that will stay with us for the last of our, last, rest of our lives. That God the Father is always going to relate to us as those who have, who are righteous in His sight because of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Now, as a believer. Do you ever experience, experience, I'm not saying, that, I'm not talking about reality, but your experience, a, subject, a subjective experience. Do you ever experience God distance distance from you? Do you ever experience chess, uh, uh, discipline from the Lord? Yes, right? And so although the Christian is justified throughout life, and all his sins are forgiven, he still may be chastened in this life, and even lose rewards in the next life for his sins. Uh, Look at, uh, again, if you have your your hymnal open, um, look at paragraph 5 of the confession of chapter 11. Um, uh, If you look through it, you're going to find the place that says, Yet they may, by their sins... You see that there? Yeah, they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure. It's important that it's not judicial displeasure. It's fatherly displeasure. It's not, it's not judging necessarily as a judge, distant judge, but as a father. And not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. Remember, justification something happens outside of us. Doesn't mean that we are experientially sinless, we may sin, and that sin can get in the way of our fellowship with the Lord, and that might uh, uh, as the confession says not might cause us not to have the light of his countenance upon us that we, we that intimacy that we long for the Lord and that won't won't come till repentance takes place but there's more than that there's also chastening discipline that happens to us for our good in Hebrews chapter twelve. Um, the Holy Spirit says that a father who loves his children will always discipline them. And if that's true of the sinful human parents, how much more should that be true of our perfect holy God who wants our good? And <clears throat> what we do in this life affects the life to come as well. And there, are, you know, our confession teaches, and I think rightly so, that sins committed even by the justified whether omission or commission might affect our eternal uh, blessings as well. Now, it's a bit of an academic exercise to talk about that because Forever with Jesus, it's hard to beat that, you know? You know forever with Jesus and Chick-fil-A for life. Sure, it's great, but this, this is the Forever with Jesus that, that really... Matter so in terms of oh this person's gonna have more rewards than this other person, it's it's true but it's even difficult to conceive how that is going to be that important for us there anyway and since we're gonna be okay with whatever Jesus does at that point, we're gonna rejoice actually. Now when you get there and Lois is ahead of the line of me, I actually we're going to rejoice for that because sin is going to be removed, right? And we'll be able to actually truly rejoice with those that uh, uh, rejoice. Uh, we see that for, uh, as far as the reward things. Uh, for example, ministers are addressed in 1 Corinthians 3 and says that uh, ministers who are not faithful, that, that, that fail to be faithful in some ways, will, won't receive the reward. 2 Corinthians 5, talking about all Christians, talks about all their, their works being judged in the last day as well. Any questions? All right, one last thing, and we'll be done with this lesson. Lately, it's been popular to talk about final justification. Uh, 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 something that will happen at the end, when Christ comes back. And in, in some areas, it's been even talked about in, in the sense, in, in Protestant Christianity, it's been talked about in the sense that we won't know whether we made it to heaven or not till that final Day. Right. That's garbage. That's a very theological, precise term. <laughs> the Bible talks about this concept of final justification, but not in those terms. It's just a pronouncement of the acqu- the, the acquittal that already happened. You know, is the well done, my good and faithful servant is the restatement of something that already happened in history. It's not like we are sitting in some place, our souls, ooh, am I going to be acquitted or not on the final judgment? That's not going to happen. Uh, That's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that we are justified in history. There's a time in which we are justified, and from that moment on, we are justified. We don't have to worry about some final justification. Are you with me on that? So, uh, usually, Protestant writers limit the term justification to that initial justification, not to some final uh, process that's going to take place there. Now, as you think of this doctrine of justification, it really should generate in us an assurance of salvation, because it tells us that it all is the work of God. When we try to find assurance in us, often we're going to fail. Especially if we're going through a season of sin in our lives. Though we should never feel assured in our sin. We have to remember that our salvation, our justification is in Christ, not in us. This doctrine also should cause humility in our hearts. Because it's not what God saw in us that caused him to declare us to be his. It's what he saw in Jesus Christ. And that's very important to help keep us humble God could have done without any of us. God did not need any of us. God doesn't need any of us. So there's no place for pride in the Christian church. Any questions about the things that we've been talking about this morning? Levi. Kind of, In unique. So it wasn't unique. It was lost. I, yeah, the church held to it. It was lost, especially because of the development of the sacramental system, right. where you needed something to keep on to keep you saved, right. and even then you weren't too sure because you might need other people to do stuff for you as well. So as that developed, it that notion of historical justification got lost, and it was recovered in the Protestant Reformation. And now Protestants tend to be losing that as well. Right. I guess I was saying more, because I know Wycliffe and Augustine and we all tell the you know, don't Everybody who's going to heaven is going to heaven. There's no predestined. Right. And nobody else. But right. I, what I was saying about that is today it's uniquely Protestant, right? There's no other. Yes. Protestant. Yes. The, of today, if you, yeah, of the three major branches of Christendom, the Protestants are the ones that at least officially hold to that idea that we're historically justified. We don't have to wait till a final day to find out if we're justified or not. Yes. What's it? My question is that um, when you say that Abraham and David believed before the law was given, so they believed that a Messiah that's what saved them? Correct. Okay. The, when the Bible talks about how um, Abraham, about how he believed God's promise that he would have a son, mm-hmm. so that's not part of it? <coughs> yeah, that's all part of the promise of the Messiah, right? Right, it was through that son, that the, the seed of the woman, that Satan said was going to be crushed and all things made right and so on. Uh, when you come to the New Testament, and, and the New Testament speaks about Abraham, he it seems like he knew a whole lot more than what's recorded in the Bible. No, Not everything that Abraham knew or God told them is recorded for us, which is proper because all that we needed is what's recorded. Uh, but his faith was way more robust than perhaps what we might think of it today. I thought I saw something. Mike? So, what? Uh, so, you're talking about historical analysis, why that groups like that would go for that? No, it's just like when these things come up, it always seems to serve some kind of cultural purpose. So, yes. Yeah, so that's okay. So, it, uh, there was a desire, a right desire, in a in, in, in a large group of people, to counteract the individualism of American Christianity, like right? me and Jesus. So the pendulum was on the wrong side. With almost every reaction, the pendulum tends not to rest at balance. tends to go over, right? So in order to address a true issue over individualistic Christianity, they went over here and made everything uh, corporate. Um, so everything is, is covenantal. Everything is uh, salvation is being a member of a church, and since that can't really get, give you assurance, since that's what being saved is being a member of a church, then you have to wait till some future time when God will tell you whether you are truly in heaven or not. Right? To be elect in, is to be a member of a church, not necessarily going to heaven and so on, and since there's no certainties there. Then you have to wait for some future time in which God looks at, uh, did Mike really keep my covenant with me as I wanted him to keep? Uh, okay, yes. So check, Mike, coming up, in the last day, right? So that's kind of and and you know we want it to be here where uh, each person comes to faith in Jesus Christ as his own in his faith, and through that faith he is joined to a collective. Not the other way around. The collective is not what joins you to Christ. Does it make sense? Christ is what joins you to the collective. So, historically, that's, I think, where we got here. Um, so. Jim. I just wanted to kind of step back and, oh, I guess thank you, Juan, for covering all this stuff, but backing up I'm looking at this as a whole, starting with... God's calling, mm-hmm. because a lot of people get caught up in oh, "my faith saved me," uh, and that kind of gets in the outside of the don't you know, reformed view, I guess. I mm-hmm. so it was good to hear that before we heard everything else, including today, faith. My faith saved me. My faith just, mm-hmm. it's important to grasp that you can't even can have faith so, Yes, apart you. from the work of the Spirit first, yes, thank you. in in our hearts. Yes any other questions before we close alright so be here next week for the kids Christmas program and then we 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 will engage on this series on two weeks from today and uh, the goal is to look at sanctification both the definitive part the moment we come to faith we are perfect positionally and then we start a journey towards perfection (laughs) that's the definitive and progressive side of sanctification let's pray together Father in heaven, thank you that you are a God who saves, and we thank you that you're saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that there'll be a reality of all of us, and that if, there's, uh, if those, and for those with us who do not believe in you, we pray that you would work in their hearts to come to faith in Jesus Christ, to give them a new birth that they might believe. We're asking in Jesus' name. Amen.